Let's call Stan and see what happens. There's no air conditioning here. Cause to turn on the air conditioning would create noise on the podcast, on the podcast. So we'll live with this heat and Stan will get it together. It looks like you're almost there, almost there, almost there. I can see you, but I can't see your hair. It's chopped off at the top. And I think we should get going, Mr. Stan. I am How's ready if you're ready. And your hair looks great. Melissa gave me a haircut. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> What's going on with your hair, Marshall? Your beard? Well, you know, the lockdown and all, there's no reason really to shave. Yeah. I'm giving it a try, you know? I like it. And uh, also, I had a teacher. It's the best. He was the best teacher I ever had that I actually worked with, Don Richardson. He was a television director for 35 years and he had a beard that was, he used to call it a broom. And I never found it particularly appealing, but I figured this is my time to feel what it feels like to be Don Richardson. It makes you look more masculine with the longer beard. Like, honestly, I think you should go maybe like another three inches and just go like full on and straight down, right? Don't don't go wide, just go down. <laughs> I like it. it. It'll make your face look even longer, which just, it'll, it just adds to that effect. Well, I feel terrible about how we started this out with just me immediately going in to talk about my beard as soon as we, as soon as you mentioned your haircut and Melissa's loving attention to you. She made you look great. I think we should hold the camera for a moment on you. You can go, yeah, you look very good. Good, yeah. Well, where's that leave us? Why don't you, why don't you introduce us? We didn't even introduce the podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Marshall Vandruff and I'm the co-host of the Draftsman podcast along with Stan Prokopenko, artist and teacher. Uh, on the Draftsman podcast, we teach you guys. No, we don't teach. Do we teach? We teach. Yeah, we teach. We, we preach. <laughs> we te- <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Basically, we give some advice <laughs> to <laughs> students to and, and, and artists who are on this journey with us. Okay. Hey, yeah. what's the difference between teaching and preaching? It sounds like you're forcing it on people. Preaching is more assertive. Ah. Okay. Yeah, it's saying something's wrong and it better be made right. <laughs> Teaching is where we sit down and have a discussion. <laughs> and it's not so much, you'd better get your act together. Uh, it's more, granted that you want to get your act together and we're in sync with each other, let me give you some, some help with this. Preaching sometimes can get, make things go faster, right? <laughs> yes, that's it. Sometimes, sometimes the mom has to kick the kid. There you go. Look, you're going to do this. Yeah, and sometimes the kid has to kick the mom and say, hey, I'm an adult now. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that happens too. Now, yeah. we have certainly veered away from our topic. Yeah. It's the Draftsman Podcast and we're here to talk about all things to do with drawing and picture making and painting and creative pursuits in the visual arts and others. So, we're going to be talking about how to learn 
by teaching. It's about giving to students and also receiving yourself in the process, that it's symbiotic. Yes. Okay. What I was thinking when I was brainstorming this episode was that even if you're currently a student, I mean, not a brand new student, but you've got, you know, maybe a year or two of experience, you have something you can teach, you know, and, and there are people who are newer than you, they're just starting out and you can start improving your own skills by teaching those people who are uh, earlier than you in their learning. I believe it. It's like being a guide on a path and there's always going to be people in front of you and they can give you some advice about what to do next and you've always got somebody behind you. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many paths that we're all on at the same time. There's another thing is that someone brings the teacher knowledge that the teacher doesn't have because they are in another world and in doing so, they become better communicators in teaching what they know. Preach it, Marshall. I got a chance to teach in 1984 for the first time. It was a fall semester at Fullerton Community College where I went and my motive for doing it was that as a student, I would sit in some of those darkened rooms during slideshows of great masters and get so excited about being an artist and so sure that I was going to do great work, so emotionally amped up. And I had actually done slideshows that my colleague JD and I could sit in a room, turn the lights off and look at slides up on the wall because there was something about turning the lights off, projecting them on the wall that just made them better. And I figured if somebody will pay me anything to do this in the presence of other people who are interested, this is what I want to do. So, when I got a chance to teach, I spent all the money that the school paid me to shoot 35 millimeter slides so that we could turn the lights off and watch these slideshows. That was my motive. And sure enough, there were students in those classes that picked up that same kind of enthusiasm and that loved sitting through those slideshows. There were other students who fell asleep too, but the ones who were excited about it, it was a little way to have somebody pay me a little money to do something I wanted to do anyway, which was to indulge in great illustrators and great artists. So it was purely a selfish motive to do something I wanted to do. But I learned that if I was going to continue doing this, I needed to have a selfless goal. The motive was selfish. The goal had to be to give the students everything I can give them so that they might be able to make their living doing this. And that became the simplest yin-yang of how I go about teaching is that I teach what I want to immerse in. And I do everything I can to make it easy for the students. That was my little speech about how I got into teaching. Should I do my speech? Yeah. Tell us about your trek into teaching and what the motive was behind it. I was very young. I was like 20 or 21, 20. I was, I was way too young to teach. <laughs> but uh -huh. like I said, everyone has someone behind them, right? That they could teach. There's always somebody 
who knows a little bit less than you because they're newer at the subject that you can teach. And yeah. um, Jeff Watts, uh, I, I, that's, I was going to his school at the time. He offered me a job to teach and I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, that's kind of the, the, short, the short story. I think I've told this story before. Yeah, you have. I was trying to get at the motive behind it. Oh, I don't know. I've always, I've always enjoyed giving advice to people <laughs> whether they want it or not. That's the Polonius problem. Do you know what that is? No, what's that? In Hamlet, there's a guy named Polonius who has all these maxims, neither a borrower nor a lender be and things like that. But he gives Hamlet a slew of advice that Hamlet's not asking for. And a lot of it is very good advice. Okay. But he's he's Polonius. He's the guy who tells you stuff that you don't even, you didn't even ask for. Okay. And uh, that is a problem with the impulse for those of us who are teachers to say, hey, I've got some, I've got some wisdom about that. I've got some advice. Yeah. Keep it to yourself. Well, I was teaching people in class while I was a student. And you were good at it. You did it well. Well, I was good enough to be offered a job to teach. So, you, res- you respected your students then even yeah, if they were no, older I than wasn't, you. I, I wouldn't just like come up to people and, and critique their work when they didn't want it. it. It was more so that people started coming to me because I was one of the more advanced students in class. They would come to me for advice. I would give them advice and the teachers started noticing and then I got a job. That, that's kind of how it ended up. But yeah, I was just naturally kind of a, a teacher, probably more so than an artist. It is students that crown a teacher a teacher. I- Schools will do it as far as, as offering a paycheck or hiring you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But still, really, it's the students that decide whether I learned from this person or not. And when enough of them do, then it means there's probably something there, whether you pursued it as a profession or not. Yeah. I don't know whether that's useful or not. <laughs> How to learn by teaching. Yeah. Why don't you read the questions that people asked us. So, question number one, advice for those of us considering teaching art at the collegiate level would be appreciated. Did I say that right? Collegiate? Collegiate, yes. Okay, good. (laughs) I don't say that word very often. Good. (laughs) When someone asks advice about teaching at the collegiate level would be appreciated, my question is appreciated by whom? Probably not most of our listeners. And the difference between teaching in college and teaching anyone else, but let's just assume other college age people who are not studying with you in college, the difference in teaching the students is not that big a deal. The, the big deal is that in a college environment, the dynamic changes dramatically. And I have a lot to say about that. And I don't know that it has to do with our theme of how to learn by teaching. Uh, Collegiate environments are by their nature political because there are a number of powers that have troubles with each other and so rules have to be made. And the grading dynamic, I think, is one of the worst things that happens between a teacher and a student. That the teacher is a supplier. The student is a client. The student is paying the money to have somebody help me get better and yet the student treats the teacher as if they're the boss and that I've got to please this person or I'll get in trouble. It's a strange contradiction that to me throws off good teaching dynamic. Some people make it work. Some people like to grade. Hard to imagine. Gatekeepers. 
by met metaphorically, those are people who like to say, you get in, you don't get in. I give you this grade, I don't give you that grade. Uh, but teaching at the collegiate level is one of the least interesting things <laughs> to me to discuss, except perhaps if you're going into it and it's, survi it's a survival thing. Uh, but I don't have necessarily the best track record either. So, it may be better to see if <laughs> people want to take that up. If we get enough requests in comments say, yeah, tell us what college is like, then we'll bring in a battery of people. Okay. So, that Marshall's opinion will not reign supreme. Does teaching at an atelier count as collegiate level or is that different? Uh, it would be different in some ways and not in others. It's like does does the way right. the politics are different. Yeah, the, the politics are different, but the politics of a country are a little different than of a state, a little different than of a city, and in a neighborhood or in a family. Yeah, the same kinds of things happen, but the political structure is a little different. So yeah, yeah, I don't really want to talk about this right now. Okay, all right. So basically, we read that question just to say, sorry, episode not for you. <laughs> Teaching in college is a, a different set of concerns that are less encouraging, I think. And we spent so much time about avoiding art school. And if you do go to art school, what to do? Yeah. What's the next question? Okay. That question number two. Uh, I'd like an episode about developing skills needed for being a good art teacher or presenter. How do you think about breaking apart content to fill segments for 30 plus minutes? Also, how do you approach giving feedback and critiques thoughtfully? Oh, and thoughtful analysis of someone else's work to ensure there's constructive feedback. Ooh, I, I like that question. That kind of applies to a, a much larger range of people. I think everybody should be giving advice to their peers when the person wants to receive it. That's easily an hour of, a, of, of talk. Right. Uh, let's go back to the title of this one. It may be that we should save a response to that question and make it more comprehensive. And But a good lead into it would be how to learn by teaching. First of all, I do want to point out we do have a, a full episode from season one about constructive feedback. Fear of critiques. Fear of critiques, and right. Attempting the very photo first realism. episode. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And we gave a lot of advice in that episode about uh, subjective versus objective critiques or feedback basically saying, you know, if it's subjective, typically probably not good because what, you know. But I wouldn't be that hard on subjective opinions. Okay. Uh, many, many of them are troublesome, but you get the right person's subjective opinion. And this is what makes someone who is gifted at marketing and gifted at knowing what the pulse of the culture is and gifted yeah. at knowing this will appeal to this age group because their opinions are their value. Their subjectivity is the thing they have to offer. Yeah, that's kind of like um, being a mentor to somebody though. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a, that's a, a different, um, there's a, a time and place for that. And if, if somebody asks you for a critique on their drawing, um, it's usually better to give objective advice here. Um, if you are mentoring a younger person and they're looking to you for just like general advice on life and stuff like that. It, it that's where opinions start to matter a little more, I think, and that's when it is more valid to give that. Do you agree, no. or, or am I? Yes, yes, I do. Okay, and that's where it can make uh, Thomas Blackshear talking about Mark English mentoring him mm -hmm. and giving him opinions 
about these great artists and these designers yeah. uh, had a profound effect on Thomas because Mark English's sensibilities were so good and Thomas's sensibilities were so good, but now I've got someone who is a fellow traveler in this direction who shows me how to do this direction so well. Very subjective in, in one way, mm -hmm. but also very, very powerful. So yeah, I wouldn't want to say objective good, subjective bad, but objective safer, objective measurable, objective more useful, universally applicable, mm -hmm. and subjective maybe closer for what a mentor can offer. Yeah, true. But if you are a student, which most of our listeners are, mm -hmm. they're learning how to draw and you want to learn by teaching, the way that you should probably teach is by trying to focus on the objective stuff, right? Yeah. Is that kind of generally yeah. a safer? <laughs> yeah. And certainly to start. Yes. Otherwise, we have... We have the problem of the, the six-year-old who dictates all the design and creates these uh, hodgepodges that are amusing, that are marvelous, but may not be the best decisions. Yes, we, we tend to gain. We, also, we tend to gain some wisdom about our opinions too. I have an icon in my life for this. Wanda Duncan, she and her husband Bob were important in my life. And they wrote lots of TV shows and novels together. And after Bob died, uh, Wanda and I spent time on the phone and she gave me feedback on some of my work. And when she, she was really successful as a writer and editor of writing, and she gave me feedback on stuff and she was so harsh in some ways and other ways she said, in fact, she prefaced it by saying, anything I say that doesn't seem right to you, trash it. And I was getting this from Wanda. Wow. I thought, okay, that's a, that's a good precursor to subjective feedback. Yeah, I've heard that from you several times. And I'm, it's, it's getting into my regular thought process now as well, actually. Yeah. Is when I'm trying to make a decision on what to leave in, what to take out of, of anything, um, whether it's a, a project for my company or a part of my script, it's if there's doubt, it should probably go. You just keep the best stuff and focus on those things. That, yeah. That's part of my normal decision making now. So, I have Wanda to thank for that? You have Wanda to thank for that and uh, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, how to learn by teaching. You've yeah. got a list of things that you, you even uh, mentioned in our notes. Yeah. What you start with, why don't you mention that? Well, okay. I mean, my general process for teaching um, is different. It's a little bit different now than when I was teaching in person at the atelier because it's a different medium, right? It, I'm not there in person with the student. Yes. I, I can't tailor my critique to them. I can't um, create a message that's specific to what they need at the moment. I'm targeting thousands of people watching who are very different in what they currently, you know, in their current, where they are in their, in their path, um, what they know, what they don't know and their personalities are different. Some might enjoy or learn better by, with visuals. Some might learn better just by listening to me. 
there's so much variety in the student that the best thing I can do is create a good quality video that kind of meets everyone's requirements. You know, it's clearly spoken. So, the, the message um, is simplified down to, and it, it's not, it's not dumbed down. It's simplified down. Yes. So, I'm not assuming that people are dumb. I'm, a, I'm just saying, if you could say something in a simple way and still keep the, the meat of it, say it in a simple way so that the students can understand. Easy. Because there's so much content in these videos. Um, and so, that, that's a big one is to, you know, have a clear message, uh, clear, clear way of saying it um, and also just always providing good visuals with it, constantly showing examples of what I'm talking about rather than just my face talking on the screen. Yeah, you do that great. Well, thank you. So, do you. <laughs> ah, well, we'll see. Uh, I, yeah, what you're talking about to me, Stan, is uh, I call it accessibility. There's some knowledge that is hard to access and if a teacher can make it so that it is accessible to a person who's new to this, mm -hmm. easy to understand. Yeah, that's respect for a student. Exactly. But uh, the beginning of my process actually starts with a lot of research because I don't want to assume that I know everything about the topic. There's, there's so much out there already about everything that I teach. I'm not pioneering anatomy <laughs> or how to draw, you know, the fundamental of the drawing. So, everything I, I teach, I start with a lot of research. Um, I take notes from every possible book that I have on the topic. I put it all together. I compile it in an organized way and I figure out, okay, now with all this knowledge, all this information that I, I now know from all these other people I learned from, how do I put it all together in a, in a clear and simple way. Um, so, yeah, research. Um, then, oh, I also, uh, part of my research isn't just gathering information. It's also gathering student work related to the topic. So, because that makes it more real. It's, okay, what is the problem? What, what are people doing wrong that this information can help them solve? And so, when you have uh, very specific examples of student work, you can um, have a much better message and much more specific advice on how to fix these things. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes uh, complete sense. Stan diagnoses before he writes a prescription. <laughs> okay. It's, yeah. And it's reminding me why classes have gone better with me when students bring something in to show every week. Don Richardson required that we put scenes up in front of him every week that he could respond to and then the teaching is in response to what's going on. What you're doing well, can congratulate you for it, put a, a label on it so you'll know what you're doing well, what needs work, let's put a label on that so that you can then focus on that. Yeah, there, there is something that's, that's valuable about seeing what students struggle with. Yeah and tailoring. Yeah, and because I'm not able to work individually with each person, I have to find a bunch of examples of how a lot of people are doing it wrong, find the patterns, you know, what are the common mistakes and address those. That way, I help 
a lot of people who are having the same issues. And it has led to some of these episodes like uh, six bad mistakes or six, six common mistakes or 12 common mistakes and that yeah. kind of thing because then we just say, look, all, all sorts of people deal with this. Right. But not just that. I mean, anything. You know, my series on drawing hands, there, a, a lot of that was based on just looking at drawings and figuring out, okay, what knowledge is missing from these students that if they knew it, their drawing would be better. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and then teaching that. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, the list format is, is great for YouTube or for anything online. Because more people click on those, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. It's like, oh, cool. It's six things. I just need to look at those six things. It's like, it's a, it's a small number. <laughs> it's approachable. And it's, it's, it's like, this is going to be a clear list of things. <laughs> 23 things you can do wrong. <laughs> no, People say too much. That's too when much. It comes down to there's one common mistake that everybody makes. <laughs> Everybody's got to click yeah, on that. The number one biggest mistake you're making right now in your sex life. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. I got to click on it just to see if I'm okay or not. Beyond that, beyond looking for mistakes, you could then look for professional artists that do it correctly. Because then there's the solution. You have the problem and you have the solution. How do you fill in that gap? Um, also, you could just use those as great examples when you're showing, you're showing your students how to do it because sometimes explaining it to them isn't enough. You got to be like, no, here, look, this is the right way right here. See how much better this looks? So, um, just finding professionals and, and masters that do it really well. Um, that also helps me just like when I'm creating the visuals for my, uh, for my episodes, it's inspiration for me of how to do it correctly as well so that I show my students more correctly. It's, yeah. it's an important part is to technically execute it properly as an example for them. To me, it's the most exciting part. Yeah. To look at how people do stuff so well. And to gaze at that and think about it and talk about it, it's like looking at the direction that you're going mm -hmm. on the journey and saying, there it is, there's the mountain, that's where we're headed. It's the, I just, it's still, it's still the main reason that I love teaching yeah. is to look at people who do great work and commune with them, even if they're not there, you're communing with them by participating in their work. And all of this is like a puzzle right? It's like there's this problem, there's a solution and now you have to like fill in these little gaps and figure out how to organize them in a way that people understand. And by the time I'm done putting to this puzzle together, I've learned so much. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what this is what this episode is about is like when you organize all of these concepts, all these thoughts, all this information in your head, you've now learned that stuff that you are now teaching. Probably, probably, you probably have learned way more uh, and it's going to stick a lot more in your head after going through this process. At least it does yeah. with me. I, I mean, I know that my anatomy has, in, my anatomy knowledge has gotten way better in the past few years that I've been teaching anatomy. Yeah, I think we gravitate toward where we look uh, and the, the only risk of it is that looking, we've talked about it before, looking at great work when you can't execute great work can be discouraging. And Ira Glass 
did a little speech about it that went viral several years ago, really valuable speech about how discouraging it can be when you look at the great work and then you try it and you say there's a huge gap, and that he wished that someone had told him that earlier on. Nobody uh, tells people who are beginners, and I really wish somebody had told this to me, is that um, all of us who do creative work, like, you know, we get into it, and we get into it because we have good taste. But it's like there's a gap that for the first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good, okay? It's not that great. It's, it's, it's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not quite that good. But because I believe in learning from great masters, mm -hmm. that is one caveat to introduce into it, that they are great masters. That's when you're a grown-up. <laughs> Don't try to lift the coffee table right now. Right. Yeah, you, you have to remember that. But it is, it's kind of like the, you know, when you're doing a puzzle, it's like the, the cover of the box. It's like, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like. Now let's figure it out. How do we get there? Yep. You don't, you're not, you shouldn't be intimidated by that cover and be like, look at all my pieces. They're all separated. Yeah. It, it should be inspiration of like, wow, if I put all these together, it's going to look like that. Well, we share a motive, which is that we love the subject. Yeah. Teaching is an excuse to pour into it. I, I don't understand why anybody would do art if they're not in love with it. Great mystery to me. <laughs> it's not like it's going to be a great career that is safe and supports your family really well. It could be, but... No, I've never it, understood. It's, it's it, a yeah. career of it's it's career of love and passion. Yeah, I think our students share that. They wouldn't be watching this podcast if they didn't. Probably not. Yeah. What about you? What? How do you approach your teaching? How do you, how do you put together a lesson? When I started doing it in 1984, it was I was way less organized than you are. I still am less organized at the beginning. Because I like to start with the energy that you have when you're a kid and you're excited about a topic and you just want to get every book on it and you want to talk about it constantly and you drive people crazy because that's on your mind all the time and it's all you want to discuss. And there's something about running with the enthusiasm. I call it kid energy, but it is to pour into it and let the, let the books, let the other teachers do the job of simplifying it for me or not. It's really just, I want to know everything I can about this. And that can only go so long before I start to have opinions. I start to have things that I say, I don't know that this makes sense or is this is helpful for me. Uh, this is, and then I'm involved with my subjective opinion. And there have been times where, for example, with teaching watercolor, listening to people say, don't mix true black paint into watercolor because it uh, muddies the colors. You can m get much better blacks by mixtures of colors that have hue in them. I challenged that and I challenged it for quite a while and I found out there was a reason why so many people said that. It isn't that it can't be done, but that was where I was doing my own personal research to take dogma and see yeah. whether it breaks apart. And I did that with a number of things. But see, in the process of that, there now it's not just taking what the experts say and funneling it through. 
it's taking what the experts say and starting to get a grasp of the spectrum of opinion, where we fall in it, and what everybody generally agrees to enough to say, here is the canon of wisdom that comes from a, a lot of people over a long period of time. But that's my approach to it, is to just, just immerse into it, it for the joy of it, as if it wasn't something I was going to teach, just something six-year-olds do not pour into their interest because they intend to make a living <laughs> or teach. Yeah. They do it out of the desire to immerse in the thing they love. That has been, I think, one of the most helpful things for me is to Ray Bradbury's chasing loves, hmm. just pursuing things that you, you care about. And it ends, I never thought of it as research. Now I know that it is research. Yeah. Can we take a side trip right now? I, I'm when you when you mention the mixing colors to make black. Yeah, I challenge that all the time too. Yeah, I I'm curious what what conclusion did you come to? I, I came to the conclusion that if you use lamp black or ivory black or uh, any of those ones that come in the, the the tube with that name on it, that there is something that pulls out the quality of the other colors. But French ultramarine mixed with burnt umber or even mixed with burnt sienna, you can get remarkable darks. Yes. That, that are really beautiful and that mix well with others. So, and again, it is not true that you can't, you can choose, I'm going to put lamp black into these colors and you can get an aesthetic that's got a kind of appealing in your face grunge about it. Yeah. But it's not what you typically see in the luminescent colors of great watercolorists. Oh, okay. You're talking about watercolor. Yeah. Specifically. Okay. I, I put it this way. Yeah, I, I'll let you go with it with, with oil co color, but here's what it's like. When you're learning to get along with people, when you're six years old, one of the maxims is don't hit your friends in the face. <laughs> okay. And that's a pretty good maxim. <laughs> But it isn't true all the time. There are times when you should hit your friend in the face. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> we can take it up later. <laughs> okay. The, the point is, there is an exception to every maxim. And part of the rebel or the researcher or the skeptic's attitude is, I will check every exception to see yeah. whether these grown-ups are just feeding me a line. And I have observed that some of the greatest skeptics that I've seen in my life personally are ones who were fed a line by the grown-ups who said, this is the way it is. And then over and over, they saw it wasn't that way. And so, they become the ones who just challenge everything. Yeah. And challenging everything has its value, but it doesn't necessarily make you a better artist. There comes a point where you say, all right, I know what the tools are and I want to yeah. not reinvent everything. I just want to take what they have to give me. Glenn Vilpu says, there's no rules, just tools. Tools, yes. Yeah all these rules that people say never use black it's like well they it, it have a, there's a specific purpose to that rule yeah and if you're not trying to achieve that specific thing then that rule doesn't apply to what you're currently doing if you don't want a colorful black why do you have to do it just use ivory <laughs> were you going to apply it to oils it can apply to oils in the same way as watercolors if you want your that dark that black color to mix with colors next to it and create a colorful color, a colorful mixture. Yeah, use a dark 
that is in the hue that you want yeah that will get you that mixture in between that is correct right do you want it to be a little more olivey dark or you know a, a little more warm or cold dark you, you know ultramarine or more of a, a ultramarine with an alizarin in it but if you're not going to mix it or if you just don't want the mixture to be colorful just use ivory black i've used it in almost every painting i've done i think it looks just fine yeah 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 <laughs> you know plus the mixtures in between the black and the 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 you know the darker shadow near the black i usually put a tile in between that anyway i'll, I'll mix the exact color i want in between that <laughs> okay we're coming back to an old man's maxim uh, uh Vilpu's maxim which is yeah. no rules just tools yeah and and the the big purpose of having this discussion is that as a kid when you're listening to the grown-ups teach you at some point you question things and as soon as you start to question things that means you're involved your energy yeah. your creativity you're saying uh, i'm not sure whether this is the case and i'm going to test it and i'm going to try it the other way that's all exciting that's a part of finding your own voice innovations happen by not following the rules i think as a teacher it's also important to have that childish mentality where you challenge things yeah because if you're just passing on the the rules from previous generations you're not doing your students any good yeah because maybe your the previous generations had very specific reasons for teaching that and now you're blindly passing it on without knowing the motive behind it yeah and it's kind of it's like playing telephone so you need to challenge everything as well while you're figuring out what you're teaching to see if it still makes sense. Yeah, that's the scientific method applied to the growth of knowledge. Mm. Right? It's always questioning, always saying wh whether this is the case. But when it's working, you go out of questioning mode and you ro you run with it. Did you finish going through um how you put together a lesson? No, I never even got to that. Oh. All this was about is the love of choosing a subject, pouring into it, an excuse to find a way to talk about what you love, talk about what you're interested in. Well, do you want to finish that then? Well, well, with me, that's a chaotic part of the process that comes at the beginning and then gradually needs to take form. And then the next step is to figure how will I explain this? And the explaining it is a whole other thing. It's to develop curriculum. And the way I usually do it, since it's been so many semesters in colleges, is in 14 to 16 week increments and with a midterm. I would rather think in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. But the way it works in colleges is that you have a midterm, so you have to think in the first half of the semester and the second half of the semester. It's not my favorite way, but it works. And then what will we deal with in that first half? What will we deal with in that second half? And then I've got a great big organization. It's a lot like when you're learning the proportions of a human figure that's standing and you say symphysis pubis, halfway point. Yeah. And when you're preparing material to teach students in a college, you've got midterm. And final. So this will go in the first half, this will go in the second half. Right. And then 
to me, as much fun as any part of teaching is to figure out how we will start and where we will link from one class to another. And that takes more time than anything else I do, even more than putting all the details in there. Just trying to find a good structure of a semester. That's the love of organizing that comes after all of the chaotic absorbing. Cool. How about you? Well, I already went over how I put together. A- but, but research and then organizing? How you organize? How, oh, how do I specifically, how do I organize? Yeah. Ah, uh, crap. There's two, two uh, aspects to the question. One is how do you organize with what software or do you put things out on a whiteboard oh. or do you put them on, on post-it notes or do you use Google Docs or do you use an outlining program? The technical side of it has a lot to do with how it works. Yeah. And then the other is what goes on in your head as far as how you make decisions to organize it one way or another. Oh man, there's so much to Well, as far as the, the, the software, I, I use Workflowy to begin with. It's just a list making tool where you could infinitely bullet in indent and it, you, can't, you create a hierarchy tree. Um, and then once I got all that together, I, and, and organized in order that I think it, it makes sense, I move that over into Google Docs and I start actually scripting it out. Um, but as far as how do I decide what to keep in, what to keep out, I feel like it, I, I use my judgment mostly. Like, is this helpful, right? There's, al- there's always an issue, right? Like the, the student work that I look at and I see these are the problems. Now, does this information help these people fix that problem? Um, and also, have I, in my experience, found this information to be useful? Or do I think it's just extra fluff that might make all the useful stuff seem less useful because it's watered down by all this other stuff? Yeah. The order in which to present the information is the biggest deal for me, I think. I try to categorize things as much as possible. Wh- which of these things go together? Which don't? You separate them, you start putting them into little groups, and then those groups start to form larger groups and then and then there becomes it slowly starts to kind of just form itself it's like oh okay this group obviously has to come after this one because you can't do any of this before you know this and and, and then eventually it just like it creates a list of notes in order that then i just have to turn into speech format and then after that i start figuring out all the visuals that go with every sentence Okay, I'm hearing a couple things and I'm going <laughs> okay. to put them in my own words. Okay. Uh, there is a, when you say you use your judgment. Yeah. A good deal of that is logical. That it makes sense that you'd get familiar with the materials before you start getting familiar with the techniques. Just one should come from uh, before the other. There's another part of it though that is emotional. That when you start to get an order of several topics that you say this leads to this leads to this and this will come back here. That's where it becomes, oh good, I've got a good structure here. I've got a good order, a pattern mm-hmm. that pleases. People use terms like elegant. Gabriel Rico's book, uh, she talks about that elegant pattern that you start to get a web of ideas that just it just feels good. Uh, that's one thing is that this process of organizing it is something a computer could do in one way, but you need a human to do it in another way. Mm. And that is emotional. 
And here's where I'd, I'd aim with this. That emotion comes from empathy with the student, which should be easy for us because we have all been students and we all are students. And I think one way to learn by teaching is to always have that lens to look at it from the point of view of the student. What would confuse me Yeah, is one of the major questions. Where could I trip with this? What's too complicated to grasp when this is new to me? And always empathizing with the energy of a person new to it. But there are others, which is, is this relevant? I might not, not be confused, but I don't know how it's going to apply it. Uh, and the ideal is, th is this, if this is clear and relevant and thrills me, makes me want to do good stuff with it. Oh gosh, how can it get better than that when we are listening to or under the tutelage of someone who's done the, who's prepared the meal uh, for the class. So taking the, that's one metaphor, is that when you're teaching, you're serving a meal and you're familiar with all of the ingredients and you enjoy the ingredients and you hope the dish will be good even if you were there on the receiving end of it. There's something I, I thought of while you were saying that last thing. Okay. This is a really important part of my teaching. It's, to me, I think that we need to make the teaching learning fun for the students, right? You can't make it so dry and, you know, boring and so challenging that it just sucks the life out of it. You know, learning should be fun. Um, that, I mean, that's why I, I always try to inject humor into it. You know, you got Skelly. Uh, people should leave the lesson more excited about the the thing that they're learning than they w were before they started watching your video or before they went into your class. Yeah. Um, and I mean, one way of doing that is just to be, be excited about it yourself, right? That excitement about the topic is contagious and uh, the students will pick up on that. And if they see like, oh, this person I look up to likes this as much as I do and he's excited about it, it, it like it gives the student um, permission to be just as excited about it and to just to focus all their energy onto it. Some teachers are, are very strict and it's like you just have to go through this process and you got to learn this and then this and this and and you have to do this assignment this way and they don't let the student just explore and have fun with it. Um, and I think that's a wrong approach. I think that um, learning is is more of a journey than a list of things that need to be learned. And the teacher needs to to allow that journey to to happen for the student. And that is an advanced pursuit to make it fun. And it comes out of some of the 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 metaphors that you use. I mean, uh, the, the teacher, there are some teachers that are strict. Mm -hmm. The teacher can be judge. The teacher can be clown. The teacher can be playmate. The teacher can be fellow traveler. There's all sorts of, of uh, 
ways that we approach it, but it is advanced to be able to take teaching and make it so that it's fun. And it's part of why you have almost 2 million subscribers is that people are watching this because you're, they know it's going to be short enough and entertaining enough to involve them. Yeah. It may be that we're also on the, the beginning of a new era of this because all of a sudden <laughs> teachers have had their jobs yanked away or radically changed where you have to do it from home now and you have to do it in front of a camera. Mm -hmm. And so there's a new set of skills that are suddenly necessary. Teaching and keeping students involved in a, in a room is different than doing it on a screen. Well, and there's multiple ways of doing it. You know, the way I do it is just one way, you know, including 3D animation with a, a silly character that I make fun of all the time is, is just one way of doing it. You, you could just do it with your words. You know, somebody who's very experienced of, on lecturing and making a lecture fun, I think they can just take that directly in front of a camera and keep that same level of fun in their, in their talking. Um, you know, every teacher is going to have a different way of inspiring their students. Um, so, you know, the teacher has to look for their own strengths to figure out how they will do it. But the goal here is to make the student want to come back every time to the class or to watch the next video. They, they need to want it. It should not be a chore that they have to get through in order to get the degree or get the skills and get the job. It, it's, it should be a desire. And it's part of the teacher's job, I think, to keep it something that is desirable. Yeah. In critiquing students' work, there are some very effective ways to do it and, and on a subjective level, and it is to make analogies. Uh, what is the work like? What's going on with it? What's your process like? Is your process more like uh, uh, making war? Are you in battle with this piece? Are you making love with this piece? Are you playing an instrument in dealing with this piece? Those can give insight. And I think that in teaching, I've had times when I saw my worst teaching on video and as I objectively assessed how this guy's teaching, I called it chip on your shoulder teaching. It was irritated that the students weren't already familiar with this <laughs> and it so damaged yeah. the entire presentation that it didn't make any difference how valuable the information was, the teacher's attitude uh, contaminated yeah. all of the knowledge. So, there's one thing to do is to, to acknowledge what role as a teacher am I playing? And then once acknowledged to choose a secret identity, I want to give a <laughs> list of some of these. Interesting. This was, there was a, a teacher, now I'm sorry I can't credit who he was, but he was an, an awarded teacher who was interviewed and asked about his teaching philosophy. And he said, I don't have any well thought out philosophy. I'm up in a helicopter looking down at students in a swamp with a megaphone saying, don't go over there, there's crocodiles over there. <laughs> he said, how's that for a teaching philosophy? I thought, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> That's funny. He's got an overview of what they've got to deal with and he's doing some preaching in a way. He's warning them. 
Yeah. He's acting as a commandeer to don't get sucked into that trouble. That's uh, to the benefit of the student. And it could be entertaining too. You know, a guy with a megaphone yelling down at you could uh, be a role that would be fun to play. Here are some others. Donald Hall had a book about writing that I read in my 20s that he likened writing to being a tour guide. And your job is to take people on this tour. Actually, it might have been uh, leading people on hiking trails. And your job is to make sure that they don't trip. Oh, that's a good one. That affects attitude. Uh, here's another one that I love. Johnny Appleseed. If you're a teacher and you're planting seeds, and it can be discouraging because these seeds seem to go into stony ground or thorn-infested ground or dry ground or whatever, and none of them seem to, to yield. Some of them do yield. And if you've got the attitude, I'm planting seeds. I don't ex I'm not responsible for them to grow. That can be a very encouraging one. And again, it brings up an energy of knowing that this can be really valuable for someone because the tree will go on and on and on uh, bearing fruit. Lighting, lighting fire is a, another one. Uh, a sailor who teaches modern navigation and how you use GPSs, but also teaches you to read the stars. That can be a secret identity to combine both traditional and digital media. Now, I've got a number of others. The mother bird that digests the food and does all the work so the baby birds don't have to uh, deal with the, the complexity of it. Uh, this could be a really fun, like 10 minute animated video. Yeah. <laughs> this is cool. But I'll tell you one of the, my favorite one, the one that I love the most is one that uh, Vance gave me years ago. He said, you're a treasure bear. You're the pirate who has the, uh, the treasure chest. And you open up the chest and you've got all of these coins and all of this paper money and all of these maps and all of these gems and, and, and things. And I just love that one because it fit. And the older you get, the more it fits that I've got this treasure chest of this stuff. And uh, it's, not, it's not the kind of things that everybody knows about right now. A lot of this is old stuff. But I think that to have some secret identities that are designed for the benefit of the student and the benefit of yourself as a teacher can go a long way. It's, uh, it's emotional and it also helps foster attitudes. So, which one am I? Let's see. You are you are the clown to some degree. <laughs> Thank you. You are, I'm you sorry. Are the, you are the you are uh, the clown who teaches a lesson. Uh, you oh, you are definitely the movie producer the, or the TV producer, because you've got a team of people who are helping you with this, and you hire and don't hire according to whether they contribute to the TV show. So I'm the delegating clown. <laughs> You're, yeah, yeah, uh, but you've got a, you've got a few of them. This might be worth. <laughs> this might be worth thinking. Uh, you are uh, the the brash young teacher, right? Because you came into this when you were like twenty four on the public stage, and this is the young guy, the kid who's smarter than the grown ups. Like the the kid who thinks they're smarter than the grown ups. No, no, the kid because you've you've gotten you've gotten enough feedback from doctors and other people who are experts who've told you that they enjoy your productions because you're the one doing the work to uh, to make it easy for everybody. Uh, how do you see yourself? Do I, you don't have a I don't know. I don't. Secret identity. I haven't given it much thought. 
You're you you also choosing role models is another one, and well, you're Walt you're Walt Disney in a way. I'm Walt Disney. Thank you. Yeah. D right. <laughs> Disney built an, an animation empire, and he he became to the point where he never animated. He didn't write, but he gave his feedback on anything. He was a consultant. Uh, he had a secret identity. Do you know what his secret identity was? No. When a kid asked him. Do you animate? No, I don't animate. You know, do you do the voices? No, I don't do the voices. Do you do the, what do you do, Mr. Disney? <laughs> and he said, let me tell you what I do. I'm like a bee uh -huh. that goes from flower to flower to flower. And, and, and he makes these things happen by going from department to, to department to department and getting from them and carrying it to other places. But isn't he also, didn't he have the whole vision? Yes. I mean, that's more than just a bee. That, well, the thing with metaphors that's so great <laughs> yeah. is that you know, you know, I'm a tiger when I want love, I'm a snake when we disagree. You can be all sorts of different weather right. patterns, you can be all sorts of different elements and that's what we do when we describe our family members. Yeah. We, we, we can be many different things. But he said that he's a bee and, that, and then he just left it there, that's it? He was explaining to the kid yeah. that my role is a facilitator, a delegator, a person who connects people who might not even be in the same room. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, a, that's a nice one. Yeah. And, it, and it's fun. Yeah. It's what, a, it's what a kid does when they play and it's what a grown-up does when they create. Okay. Cool. Marshall, well, I was going to suggest reading some voicemails. We're, we've been at this a long time. This is a long podcast. Yeah, I think yeah. we're done. Uh, plus, we have to get to... Scott, we're going to be recording with Scott Flanders, you guys. Scott Flanders is going to be here with us. He will be the first guest that the Draftsman podcast ever brought in. Yeah. And this is going to be your treat. If you don't know who Scott Flanders is, um, look up the videos I've, I've made with him. Uh, he's a concept designer and he made he's made several videos with me now. A whole series on the Swamp Thing where he did it digitally, then he sculpted it, and then he did it in oil paint uh, and that was a really cool series. Woo! Okay. See ya. All right, guys.